0: So at this point, we would filled with three products. And I realized that maybe I'm doing something wrong here. (laughs) So I went back to the drawing board. So I scrapped all our products, actually got rid of all my team. So at that point, I built, I think, a team of six people. So got rid of all my team, except for my technical co-founder.
1: Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Aid Evolved. And I'm your host, Rowena Luke. In this season, we're telling the stories of high-impact social enterprises, with a particular focus on technology in Africa. Today, we have with us Ikpeme Neto, CEO and founder of Wella Health. Wella Health is working to finance healthcare for the next billion via affordable microinsurance health products. In 2021, it raised its seed round of funding, it partnered with 1500 pharmacists across Nigeria, served 40,000 patients, and today is experiencing massive growth month after month. In the hour ahead, you'll hear about all the ideas that Ikpeme tried before he landed on well Health. Some of them were pretty plausible, so it's interesting to hear about all the ways in which they didn't pan out in the Nigerian space. Ikpeme recalls the moment when he decided to risk it all by giving up a comfortable life in New Zealand to come home to Nigeria and make a bet on a new startup. Finally, he shares what he learned and how he learned it about the market for healthcare in Nigeria and the role technology can play to dramatically bring down the cost of healthcare to make it accessible to new populations. To start off, let me tell you a little bit about Iqpeme. Iqpeme was born in Nigeria, but he went overseas to Ireland to study to be a doctor. He graduated from Trinity College London in 2011. But after a few years of working in medicine, he realized he wanted to do something a little bit more than just treating one patient after another after another. He wanted to do something at scale. But he wasn't quite sure how to do that. He took a summer and tried out public health work. And in his words, realized, oh crap, I don't think this is going to be good for me. And then he started to wonder about entrepreneurship. But he still wasn't sure where to begin. After graduating in Ireland, he relocated to New Zealand and worked there for a few years, before he got the seed of an idea when his mom, back home in Nigeria, fell sick.
0: But I sort of stumbled on tech, to be honest, because what had happened was I was working, I'd left Ireland, I was working in New Zealand, and my mom back home in Nigeria was having some challenges with her healthcare, and she couldn't really access the right kind of care. And I was, you know, all these miles away, and I was able to help her using the internet. And I realized, oh, well, actually, if I can do this for my mom, perhaps I can do this for thousands of others, and perhaps other doctors can leverage the internet as well to do it for millions of people across Africa. So that's when the light bulb went off. What did
1: you do for her? What happened? So, I mean, it was essentially
0: just finding the right care. You know, that was it, you know. So it was very difficult to access the right care. So it was looking for the right doctors, you know, keeping track of her, you know, tests and where she needed to go, what she needed to do, stuff like that. And I wasn't there with her, but I was able to use the internet to do all of that.
1: That makes total sense. Just finding the right person with the right expertise and the right supplies, you know, just making those connections. That's what internet and modern communication is all about. So did you just, teach yourself technology? How did you pick up the, the team or the skills in order to start technology organization?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing you learn in medicine is you need to find information, right? And so I just went to my local library. I said, you know, I want to I do this tech thing. So, you know, what what is all this thing about? And so I went to my local library and I picked up two books. Thankfully, they had these two books, which are really good books. One was um, How to Start a Technology Business, which was like, wow, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Perfect! Wow. Exactly. You know, it was by, by a guy called Alexander Cohen. So a really good book. But the second book, which was a little more impactful to me, was a book called The Lean Startup.
1: That one I've heard.
0: Exactly. So you know, read that, and essentially after I read that, I was bitten by a bug. You know, the entrepreneurship bug bit me, and since then I haven't looked back.
1: Wow. Was it scary? Was it? Were you afraid at all? Were you worried? I mean, like you'd, you'd never done this before. Yeah. I, I don't know if you have a lot of entrepreneurs in your family, but it it sounds daunting.
0: Yes, it was. But I was I was pursuing the part of trying to solve the problem, right? And so when I'd done it, so how it had happened is I'd done it for my mom and I thought, you know what, I've done all of this. It was really difficult for me to do it. Can I turn it into something that's useful for others? So actually, I, I wasn't thinking of it as a business initially, right? I just wanted to build something that would help others the way I had done for myself. Right. But I also wanted to be sustainable because I knew that, you know, it's important for things to be sustainable. So I I pursued like, you know, an NGO route or, you know, building a foundation like you asked. But I always knew that there's always a challenge with making those things sustainable. You know, oftentimes you're beholden to your funders. You know, your donors kind of essentially decide what they feel right about and it, you know, fund you to do those things. But what if the people you're actually trying to serve don't really have those problems, right? (laughs) Then you're kind of stuck. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and that's a challenge with donor funding.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you're not stuck in the sense that the donors will still pay for it and the program will still run. You just end up in the situation where nobody actually wants the thing that the program is doing.
0: Exactly. And that's what I mean by stuck, because I, I would feel stuck because what I want to do is serve people with what they need.
1: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and
0: what is the most efficient way to serve people what they need? I think it's a business, actually. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You get constant feedback from people because they're paying you all the time. And when they stop paying you, you got to go back to them and find out what it is that they'll pay you for and then you deliver that.
1: It's true. A a dollar or a naira, it's the most authentic type of vote. It's their way of saying, like, I value this. I'm willing to put this into your system. So what was the first thing? What did you start off with? What was your first experiment in entrepreneurship in in tech?
0: Yeah, so the first thing, so it wasn't scary. It was exciting when I started off, right? Because I still Mm -hmm. had my day job, of course. I was still a doctor. Um and so at night time or early in the mornings I'd wake up like super early I'd work late at night trying to figure this out. And so the first thing was wow. we tried to build a Zocdoc for Nigeria, right? So uh-huh. find a doctor, book doctor appointments. Right. Right, so that was the first thing we tried to build.
1: Huh, where did that go?
0: Nowhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there are services like that. There's a, I mean there's one here in South Africa. In any particular countries there are recommended services for doctors. Although I've never paid for those services. I just kind of find them on the internet.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. There you go. So people don't usually pay for them. And with the way people accessed health information in Nigeria, it just didn't work. It didn't really suit the realities on the ground.
1: I see. Cause it was a website of some kind and exactly. the average person isn't going to browse into this random website. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that website gathered dust somewhere. You must've been a little bit heartbroken that that baby was gathering dust. <laughs> Yes,
0: but I was reading the Lean Startup, right, remember? And so Mm. the Lean Startup says you build, you measure, and you learn. And so it was not really discouraging for me. It was me essentially understanding that it's an iterative process where you build, you measure, and you learn, right? Mm -hmm. And so pivoted away from that and then Mm -hmm. built another product.
1: What was the second product?
0: So the second product was Chronic Disease Care Coordination Platform.
1: Oh, that sounds relevant. Like across different institutions and facilities to manage exactly. someone who has exactly. diabetes, exactly. for example? Exactly,
0: Yeah, so it made yeah. sense to my mind. I mean, I was, I was uh, managing a lot of chronic disease and that's my interest in lifestyle and chronic disease. And so I thought, you know, this fits with what I'm trying to build. If I can't get people to book stuff, then maybe I can have, you know, a cognition platform across, you know, multiple providers that helps to collect all the data, sync it together, provide some insights and actionable feedback to the providers themselves, the professionals and the patients. Yeah. And that was the, the second big idea.
1: Yeah, I wonder if I know where this is going. Why didn't <laughs> I, <think you> do. <laughs> I could guess why that would be hard to take off the ground? But let me let me hear it in your words.
0: <laughs> well, so again, similarly, well, it it failed, and the reason was that we were we were trying to connect different providers, but we realized that all the data in providers were in paper form in their offices.
1: Hmm. Right.
0: Right. So there's no data to connect, right? It's all analog. It's not digital at all. So mm-hmm. it failed because we couldn't make that transition to connect all these providers into a digital platform.
1: Yeah, I hear you. I think what I would add to that picture is in that particular continuity of care business model, the value you're getting is the sharing of data between facilities. But then just getting those facilities to talk to each other and to share their data, forget the technology, like just getting two institutions to share data is a is a is a political mountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> political I mean, we never even got there.
0: Me. Yeah, we never <laughs> even got there. Like the data wasn't even there. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a <laughs> challenge. Yeah. But we never got there. So you can imagine what the next business, the next product was, right? The next product was <laughs> then, actually, can we go digitize one of these types of providers?
1: That makes so sense to me. So that was the
0: next Exactly. So we went in and tried to digitize labs because we thought at least labs give you, you know, numerical data that is potentially actionable on its own.
1: Right, you know, so right, right.
0: If, if you've got diabetes and you've got an HbA1c that's high, at least that gives us information for us to be able to help you somehow, you know, regardless yeah, that makes of sense. anything else, you know.
1: Right. And then people so go had, in, they, t- they do their tests and then they can get their lab results much faster. They can begin treatment much faster. Like there's a clear value to an individual that comes from automating a, a centralized lab Resource. That seems like, that seems like it could work.
0: That's what I thought, but it didn't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love your resilience through all of this.
0: Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Oh, there's more, just wait, there's more. Oh man, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so for that one, I I think from the user's point of view, it was, it it made a lot of sense, at least from, as a doctor looking at it, but the challenge was who would pay for it? was the question, right? Mm. Because it was extra effort, you know, to get a lab to digitize their processes, you know, took considerable pain and a considerable cost. So who would pay mm. for it? And the labs were always complaining, like, listen, we, you know, our margins are tight enough as it is anyway. You know, we're not going to mm. stick this into our, you know, margins. It's going to cost us too much. And we can't pass it on to our customers because they're not going to pay. They're not going to pay for it and they'll just go on to somebody else. So we just, right. you know, got stuck finding who it was most valuable to for them to pay for.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause in other markets and other countries, there are laboratory information systems when you have a, you know, when there is a an ability to pay for a laboratory that will deliver those results quickly. But in Nigeria, where you're working, it was clear like these systems were were already strained and you could improve the quality, but the issue wasn't it wasn't just a matter. It wasn't enough to improve the quality like you needed to do to to address something that people were willing to pay for. And that willingness to pay for that particular product wasn't quite there. It sounds like both at the at the level of like the consumer, but also at the level of the laboratory and the hospital systems itself, like it, there was not interest.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a deep enough problem or significant enough problem that people were willing to pay for. Right. So I put my doctor hat on. I went to labs. Uh-huh. But then I realized that actually, if I step back, so when we filled the labs, so at this point we'd filled with three products and I realized that maybe I'm doing something wrong here.
1: <laughs> ah, it's only three.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, so so I went back to the drawing board. So I scrapped all our products, actually got rid of all my team, you know?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: So I, at that point I built, I think, a team of six people. So uh-huh. got rid of all my team except for um, my technical co-founder.
1: Was that, because, was that hard? Like it,
0: So no, actually, because I think they also were like losing patience and faith in me. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were happy to see the back of me. Um, so we say it was by mutual consent, actually.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Like you kind of got to a point where everyone was kind of, it wasn't getting traction and you weren't getting returns and people and, and the whole team was just kind of like, okay, this is not... This is not where we're going next. Like You, you could feel the momentum wasn't, wasn't there. Yeah, you weren't getting yeah. the, the traction that you were hoping for.
0: Exactly. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot of clarity, right? And if you were not signed on to the lean startup model and idea, it feels yeah. very haphazard and very chaotic, right? Oh,
1: interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So so Good to know. It but, sounds
1: like a big reset moment. You know, you, you get rid of your entire team and narrow it down to two people and go back to the drawing board. Is that right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that's when I, so that's when, and this time, so by the time we got to the third product, that was when it was failing, because I was still doing this. I still had my day job, remember? And I was in New Zealand as well, remember, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it was, for me, it was now, okay, this is a crossroads, you know, you got to decide, are you going to keep being a doctor and doing this on the side? Or are you going to go actually do this properly? And I was, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd learned so much, put in so much work, you know, invested all my own, you know, money as well. And it was just so exciting. It was now starting to compete with me actually being a good doctor.
1: Right. Because your passion is moving into this different space. Like, you know, you can exactly. create these products.
0: Exactly. And so the decision was easy for me because I knew that if I stayed being a doctor, I'd be a bad doctor.
1: <laughs> that makes so much mm. sense. So what did you do?
0: So I moved. I moved back to Nigeria. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you quit your job. You're start. You're no longer a doctor. You moved back to Nigeria right. to start a company Full-time. Did you have some savings at least, you know, to live off of for a while? Well, yeah. Okay. So yeah,
0: liquidated the savings and pension and all that stuff.
1: I know, <laughs> Who needs a pension? <laughs> crazy, I know. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Did you know when you were on the plane, when you were flying back to Nigeria, what exactly you were going to do or, or were you still figuring it out at the time?
0: No. So I think at that time it was failing, right? So that, you know, that last product was sort of failing, and I kind of knew that actually, why part of the reason why I quit and moved back was I needed to be on the ground to really understand the market. Mm-hmm. It was obvious that I didn't understand the market at all and I couldn't do it from so far away.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. Yeah. What did you learn about the market? How did that, how did that inform the next thing that you built?
0: Yeah. So I got a little office in a shared office space and just literally went around and started talking to people. So now I've been away <laughs> from Nigeria for about a well, over 10 years. That's
1: a long time.
0: Yeah, exactly. I hadn't really trained in Nigeria. I'd only spent a summer in a Nigerian hospital, So I didn't have a network. I didn't know anybody. All your friends had forgotten you. Exactly. (laughs) Like,
1: who's that guy? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, so I had to come back and recreate a network from scratch, understand the market and all that stuff. And so I essentially spent, you know, the first sort of few weeks to months just going around to conferences and meetings, you know, meeting people, doing a lot of work on social media, media. So I'm a big Twitter user. Um, nice. And the, the motivation was to actually build a profile and build a network around you know all of this. And so what I learned then was that the first place a lot of Nigerians actually go to when they feel unwell is their local pharmacy.
1: Uh-huh. Like a local private sector place that sells, you know, hundreds of different products.
0: Exactly. And so I said to myself, well, if I'm gonna figure out healthcare for the mass market, it's gotta be in pharmacies because that's where the mass market goes, right? That's where the mass market goes.
1: Yeah, and it's gotta be private sector since the vast majority of healthcare spending is private. I think in, in Nigeria, it's 77% of healthcare spend is out of pocket.
0: Exactly, so it's gotta be in the pharmacies in the private sector. It's gotta also be tangible because one of the things I learned was that it was difficult to sell things that were not tangible, both to the providers and to the patients.
1: What's something that's not tangible, like the directory you're talking about?
0: It's, well, that, but even, <laughs> even think about healthcare. Doctors in Nigeria struggle to like, collect payments from patients for consultations. Mm-hmm. But patients would happily pay for medications because it's tangible. Like I give you money I and see. I have this physical thing you know, that I, I can see. value and look at, right? And so what a lot of doctors and clinics in Nigeria do is the consultations are actually quite affordable, but the markup on the medications are a lot more. That's actually where they make a little of the margin, is in the medication, right? Because people happily pay that extra for this tangible thing I can hold, rather than this conversation that's ten minutes. So why am I paying all this money for a ten-minute conversation?
1: You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's specific to Nigeria. You know, like there's something there's something about preventative health, which is just like it's just like a little bit of a harder sell for the mm-hmm. average person who might be in good health at that moment in time. <laughs> Exactly. So I think even
0: culturally, we just like really tangible and literal things, you know? So mm-hmm. I think I understood that and said, you know, we're going to, we have to work with pharmacies and find a way to help them be better and serve patients better and create value for everybody in the chain.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What then? So
0: I sat in a pharmacy because obviously, you know, <laughs> I didn't know what it meant to be a pharmacist, right? And <laughs> I, I, I just, I walked up to a pharmacy near my office and, you know, struck up a friendship with a pharmacist. And one day I said, "You know what? Do you mind if I sit with you for the next week and just observe what you do?" And she was like, "Yeah, sure."
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm glad. I'm glad she took you seriously. It's kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing to imagine. <laughs> you just showing up. I, I and know, like, hey. but
0: but I I I I built up a relationship with her beforehand. So like I would, she was by my office. So I'd always go there to like shop. I say, "Well, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm building, you know, all these crazy things," and I'd always tell her what I'm doing. I'd hold seminars, for instance, I'd invite her to do seminars. So we kind of built up, you know, a a relationship. And so when I did ask, you know, it wasn't so absurd. I didn't just walk up the street (laughs) and away. (laughs) That
1: makes sense. What did you find as you were watching her do her work?
0: Yeah, so I sat behind the counter for a week and I was revealing. But one of the things that was apparent to me was that a patient would come in the door. They would, you know, ask for medication. The pharmacist would hand it over, collect payment, and the patient would go. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And I said to the pharmacist, it's like, well, this patient, you know, is at least, you know, the people on chronic medications, would you not like want to like, you know, know who they are, you know, where they live so that from a business point of view, let's leave the medicine or the healthcare side of it from Mm -hmm. a business point of view, because they've got diabetes, you know, that essentially for life, like, you know, they could be a customer but you're that not even collecting sense. any information to build that uh, relationship. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. That's a good point. And I'm like, oh, great. I like that. So, <laughs> so, so that's what we did. So I sat behind the counter with my computer. I created an Excel sheet and patients would come in. I just take their names down, take the information on the prescription that they had, what medications they were taking, and take their phone number. And I had a SMS toolkit kit there where I would um, send them a message straight away and um, with the instructions for their medications, and it would then queue up messages to remind them when to come back. So if you had a month's supply, you would get an automatic message in a month's time so you need to come back to the pharmacy for a medication.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you see systems like that. I'm sure they're in New Zealand, they're in Canada and the United States. It's nice because you can have that continuity of of dialogue with the beneficiary. You, know, you can make sure they take the meds. You can send them tips about how to take their medication. But it also makes sense for the pharmacy because the pharmacy will encourage them to come back and maybe, maybe the patients appreciate having those reminders. Maybe it's a reason for them to think, okay, I'll go back to this pharmacy that sends me the reminders versus another one that doesn't. Exactly. So that makes that makes a ton of sense.
0: Exactly. And so we got our first payment. So we finally made money.
1: (laughs) Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) That's a big deal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. I I think I framed the check. Yes, that was our first client.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Wow. That must have been the moment when it started to feel a little bit real. I imagine up until then, you're like, I, I came all the way from New Zealand. I'm sitting here tweeting a lot. <laughs> uh, when is this going to pay off? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, no, it, was, it was so delightful. Like I, I, yeah, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing feeling to finally get somebody to you know, actually pay you for, for something you had built. And it actually, the first customer paid for a year in advance. You know, We were charging monthly payments, but he was so convinced he paid us a year in advance.
1: Wow. Are you at liberty to say how much? You charge for that initial piece of software? Ooh, yeah, goes? no, it was
0: it was sixty thousand naira at the time. I've got to do the math, nice. but I think that was probably two
1: hundred dollars or three hundred dollars at the time. Nice, well done. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <That's awesome>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, great. I have an idea. It has a business model that makes sense. I'm going to take it all over Nigeria. Right? Exactly. That's what happened?
0: Yeah. So well, you know, there's always a but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I'm waiting. So,
0: so, but we, 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 you know, obviously now we've got something of a business. Somebody has finally paid us for something. We're like, yes, finally, right? Mm-hmm. And so we finally go, we build it out um, and then we start to sell. Mm-hmm. And we very quickly realized that even though there was value here and people would pay, it wasn't quite the products that the, the broad market would adopt. And so we got to about 200 odd pharmacies that were paying us, which was nice. essentially all the early adopters in Nigeria. That was essentially
1: it. That's huge. 200 individual pharmacies. Like, is it? are they, did you go like pharmacy to pharmacy or are there pharmacy consortiums that you work through? Or how does that work? No, so we,
0: yeah, it was pharmacy to pharmacy. It was conferences. So we do a lot of conferences and meetups and then go pharmacy to pharmacy as well.
1: Wow, that's incredible. That's a huge achievement. To a lot of people, that sounds like traction. Does it not?
0: No, but we couldn't move past that number. You see, that's the challenge.
1: (laughs) You're looking for that, that, what is it called? S curve.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, high growth. So two hundred was was painstaking. You know, it was lots of like convincing. It was lots. It was a lot of effort. You I know? so Even yeah. though it was two hundred, it was a lot of effort. To be honest,
1: there was a lot of friction. Like you, you had to pound the pavement. You had to make those relationships, like with individual pharmacists, and it was it was slow going.
0: Exactly, and and the uptake wasn't that great. So even when say a pharmacy would buy it.
1: Mm-hmm. we didn't
0: always get consistent use. So we'd have, say, maybe 20% that were like always constantly using it, but we have like another set sort of 80% that would be very variable. So they might use it this week, they might use it next week. And we knew that that wasn't a great product to try and scale anyway, if, you know, it's variable in usage.
1: Interesting. But how do you yeah. know? Because sometimes, I don't know if, you, if you've if you read The Dip, there are certain products where you like you just need to get over the hump. You just need to like refine it or tweak it or get the price point just right. And I think a lot of founders will spend a lot of time banging their heads against their product and give it a few years and then somehow a few years in it, it takes off or it doesn't. Like, how did how did you know that it was the right time to move on?
0: I think speaking to customers, right? So again, we always went back to first principles and say, well, you know, what is your biggest challenge? Because one thing we found was when we when we spoke to you know customers and said, well, you've bought this thing, but you're not using it, you know, why is that? And, you know, there'd be lots of, you know, the, the response would always be something around, well, you know what, I, I I think it's great, but I'm not able to integrate it into my workflow because I need my people doing other things that I feel are more important, right? Mm. Um, and there'll be always pushback from the actual people on the floor, you know, they wouldn't really want to use it at all. Yeah. And when we when we eventually kind of, you know, looked at all the customer interviews we'd done, we realized that actually this wasn't a primary problem. It was a like a nice to have, not a need to have. And really what they most wanted, the biggest challenge they had was selling more drugs. Literally everybody would say to us, just help me sell more drugs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want. This is too fancy and, you know, it's going to maybe make me more extra revenue, you know, in maybe three months down the line. And I'm not even sure whether it's you guys or not. But if you can bring a patient into my pharmacy that pays me, you know, Love that solution. Go build that for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, sell more drugs now. <laughs>
0: now, that's it. Yeah.
1: That makes that makes a ton of sense. And I love what you're saying there about the real need. There's so many, so many well-intentioned projects that that say like, oh, they say it's useful. Like I've talked to them. They say it's feasible. They say it's useful, but it's not really a question of is it useful. It's a question of is it the most useful thing? Is it what they care about? Is it priority number one? And for a pharmacy, yeah. priority number one is selling drugs now. And so exactly. you realize, so you knew. This was always a second fiddle to some higher, higher effort that was undertaking. And so the yeah. question for you became, okay, how do I address the number one thing that they're asking me to do?
0: Exactly. That's exactly How do you right. address it? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's key. Like I was, I was really honest with myself. Right. And, and, you know, not just, just allowing the market to tell me what they wanted. Right. And so we went and looked at the data and we realized that what they sold the most, the most was malaria care. Right. So consistently across all our pharmacies, all the data pointed to malaria care. They'd sell loads and loads of anti-malarials. And so we thought, can we wrap a product around that, that we sell to the public and bring them into pharmacies?
1: Can I say that's one of the things that I find most interesting and one of the things I really love about Wella Health and its approach, particularly compared to the aid sector where I've done a bunch of work. There's so much funding out there for HIV because of whatever political reasons. But you're Mm -hmm. looking at the actual data that people individuals are spending on malaria yep. and on on healthcare and malaria is at the top of the list and just the strategic decision to focus on that drug also the fact that you can you can treat it in the community in a way that you can't treat other things i think is it's a pretty a pretty essential strategic decision that that you made as you were figuring out the contours of the future of wella health
0: yeah that's absolutely true so we just dug in and said okay how can we make malaria care better more efficient mm-hmm. and cheaper as well for the customer. So that's what we tried to build. So we built a malaria care service centered around pharmacies. So you could go into a pharmacy, have a consultation, get a point of care test, get medications, all for like a fixed price a month, right?
1: How do you make it both cheaper for the client as well as address the pharmacy needs to buy more? How do you create that value on both sides?
0: Yeah, so the key for on the customer side was aggregating the demand, you know? So the challenge Mm -hmm. with the malaria care, the way it was structured now is it was very it's very hard to predict and, you know, hard to know where we come from. Yes, you get lots of people coming in to buy drugs, but you're not sure when, how, why, or where. You know, so what we wanted to do was aggregate demand and um, help that demand be more efficient in uh, matching matching it to the supply side. So Mm. that one thing we also learned was that when people say malaria in Nigeria, what they actually mean is an acute feverish illness. What it means is that malaria is a symptom, actually. So people use the word malaria, To describe symptoms not the disease because technically speaking the only way to know whether you have malaria or not is via a test yeah so us in medicine would say malaria is not a clinical diagnosis and clinical means that you didn't test it so you just you know looked at somebody took a history and examined them some conditions you can diagnose without a test malaria is not one of them because malaria presents like hundreds of other diseases COVID and malaria have similar symptoms, for instance. Oh man, <laughs> that <laughs>
1: sounds messy.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that was part of the thing we wanted to educate people and say, well, you know, lots of people, the moment they have a bit of a headache and, you know, they feel a little bit feverish, they just go and take anti-malarials. And part of the the, the job we were doing in aggregating that demand was to educate people and say, well, actually, the fact that you feel, you know, a bit ill doesn't necessarily mean you have malaria. So we can save you that extra anti-malaria that you take, say, two, three, four times a year by testing you first. So if we test you and you don't have malaria, then we save you that extra medication and time and energy and just actually help you, you know, recover and diagnose something else
1: that makes a lot of sense to me I think the value for an individual person is that they get a basket of care it's not just the malaria beds. it's also the testing it's also the the counseling and the support that happens in between but doesn't that take revenue away from the pharmacist why do pharmacists work with you
0: well, so yes and no because we find the patients, right? So the pharmacist doesn't have to. So from the pharmacist's huh. point of view, what they feel is, well, I've got my regular patients who are coming door anyway, and Welli Health is bringing me extra.
1: I see, I see. You're, bring, you're opening access to it. new clients. Exactly. Oh, right. And the nice thing about that is, because like, part of what you're doing is you're you're creating a health insurance that's more affordable, more accessible. Like you're you're opening the doors to a population that maybe never don't don't go <laughs> to any health institution because they, they can't there afford it. And exactly. because you're opening up that market for on the pharmacy side, they want those additional customers that are coming in. And then from uh, the individual side, you're able to bring the price point down because in exchange for a consistency of being able to pay, they get a whole basket of services that they're covered for.
0: Exactly. So that's it. So we started out with just malaria, but uh-huh. we, so we got approached them by an insurer. So, because then you know, we, I never thought I'd be working in insurance at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a long, weavy journey. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. You know, but then we got approached by an insurer who had independently kind of, you know, come to the same conclusion that they needed to create a malaria-based product that was delivered in pharmacies, right? But they hadn't figured out the actual nuts and bolts of how you would do it.
1: Mm-hmm. And and so when have- they
0: saw, Yeah, we had. when they saw our ads on social media, they were like, oh, geez, we got to work with these guys because they figured it out. We haven't. You know, so it was kind <laughs> of a, a marriage made in heaven, if you like. And so they become a, became an underwriter. We were able to figure out the service side. And together, we we're able to build and design, you know, micro health insurance products that malaria is still the ankle, but we have other things. So we've got telemedicine now. We cover like typhoid. We have hospital cover as well. So we now yes. have this really affordable, you know, product that really speaks to the day-to-day healthcare needs of the average person.
1: Nice. And when people think about Wella Health, like what is, what is the organization built around? What is its product? Uh, just from looking at your website, it looks like you're not an insurance company because you partner with insurance companies, so you support insurance companies. You're not a pharmacist because you partner with the pharmacies, you support exactly. them. Would you say you're ultimately a technology company? You're building tools to enable that's the it. pharmacy and the insurance and the people?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's what's been missing. There's this middle layer that's missing in the industry that helps to connect everybody efficiently. And beyond mm. just the tech is also the trust. So traditionally, all the players don't trust each other at all.
1: <laughs> How do you mean?
0: Yeah, they just don't. You know, so for instance, <laughs> you know, when we started out with pharmacies, they would refuse to see our patients. You know, because they were like, you know, I don't know you guys, um, huh. and I'm not sure that you guys will pay me um, when I see your patient. So pay me upfront. Oh, so we pay pharmacies upfront. You know.
1: Oh interesting um, that makes sense because they're moving from a cash economy to one that's cashless and they're exactly. like why why would I trust your mobile app why you tell me this exactly. android thing is going to spit out money is it going to spit out yeah. money yeah right yeah. interesting
0: yeah. and and in the industry there's already a, a tradition of the insurers not paying on time they would often owe you know providers for months and months and months so all of that was broken down. So I think we really fit that, you know, middle layer that connects everybody together, adds a layer of trust and technology and enables everybody to work together to actually scale this access.
1: How do you grow it? How do you grow your partners and your audience? It sounds challenging. You reach so many different people at so many different levels.
0: Exactly. It's very difficult. So when, we, for for instance, so we have, we have customers that absolutely hate us and have turned. <laughs>
1: why why do they hate you
0: and the reason is when we started out we only had say 300 pharmacies so of course you know it was terrible
1: ah yes yes because you you didn't have the network effects it's all about that bootstrap right
0: exactly and we didn't have the experience either you know so our early product was so bad i'm so ashamed of it till today
1: you You gotta start somewhere yeah
0: exactly that is the only way you know so like i'm sure there's you know a number of people that, you know, when they hear "Well, I Health, they think, oh, those guys are useless. You know, and then, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> because two years ago, we were useless. We had only 300 people, 300 pharmacies. The team was like, you know, very scrappy. You know, our tech mm-hmm. was rubbish. But you okay. got to start somewhere, you know. Yeah. Um, and so the advantage that we did have is, you remember, we had that, you know, product for pharmacy. So we essentially flipped it around. We made our product free. And we now turn the pharmacies that were paying us into the base layer for our network.
1: That's brilliant. Wow. That makes so much sense. Because then you could leverage all the business development, all those partnerships and give something away for free. Like that's nice too, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. So very rapidly, we're able to go from just, you know, 200, 300 odd to about 1,500 now within two years.
1: Wow. Wow. No, I really, I'm really impressed by that. Flip. I think when, when companies pivot... Oftentimes they have to like burn the old bridges and, and start new ones, but you were able to, to leverage that capital and then get traction. When did you start to feel that traction? Like, when did, what, was, what was the moment where you were like, okay, I think, I think this is going to go better than the pharmacy automation track? So
0: I think it was first of all when when the insurer reached out to us, we thought, okay, mm. this must be a significant problem we've solved here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know? So that was the yeah. first thing. You know, they reached yeah. out to us and we, you know, hammered out the deal pretty easily. So that was great. Mm-hmm. And then I think I think the second time when we felt, oh, actually, this is really valuable, was with COVID. When huh. when COVID hit, what happened was a lot of hospitals and clinics we're turning patients away. They wouldn't like see patients, you know, this is early on. They would say, you know, unless you're like dying, don't come to hospital. Yeah. What that meant was insurers were in a very tight position because a lot of times their patients would always go to hospitals, especially for like medication pickups. Right. Right. So they now needed places outside of hospitals to send patients to for medication pickups in particular, but for like lots of other things. So telemedicine use, for instance, shot up. Yeah. And then people, you know, trying to work with, you know, retail pharmacies in the community also increased. Well, guess yeah. who has the largest network in the country?
1: <laughs> well, health.
0: Exactly, right? Amazing. So we now became like a, a central partner for like lots of um, insurers. So even though we have our own like insurance products that we've worked with an insurer for, we actually are a service layer for about 10 other insurers right now.
1: Fascinating. It's almost serendipity in a way. Like you never planned for COVID 19, nobody did. But because of the pandemic, there was that real strain on the healthcare system. And you just happened to be in a space where you knew you could reduce burden from the healthcare system. If anything, your whole model was around redirect or was around serving that layer, which is outside of the hospital system. And so it just so happened that the entire hospital system was incentivized to give you business and to invest in your growth just over the course of the past few years. Exactly. That's wild. So I was, my dad used to say that starting a business is a combination of ton of hard work, you know, having the right product, having the right team and a little bit of luck. Just a little bit of luck.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think after all my failures, I was due for some luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were due. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> ah. What is some of the things that you're proud of now that Wella Health has achieved after that uptick?
0: Geez, I mean, like, it's, it's really <laughs> difficult what we've done, you know? So everything, I don't know, I don't know where to start. Like everything has been literally like very painful, you know? Um, but I, I, I'm i actually particularly proud of like the core team we've built. We have like a core team of people who are really passionate about the problem we're solving yeah. and have kind of stuck together through a lot of very, very difficult times. So when I got rid of my former team, I, you know, brought new people on who we've been mm. together for the last sort of four or five years, just, you know, mm-hmm. figuring this out and... Um, and it's really exciting to see, you know, the, that core team get better and better and also bring more people on. So currently we're just over 40 people. And every mm-hmm. time, so for the first time, so we are, we're a distributed team. So there's, you know, oh, we're in four or five different cities. And so for the first time, we all got together in a room together last December.
1: Nice. It was, that must have felt so good. Room.
0: Yeah, it was so emotional to see like, you know, all these people that had, you know, come from essentially things I was dreaming about when I was a doctor in New Zealand, you know?
1: <laughs> For sure. And yeah, I think we didn't even talk about the fact, the fact that all of this is happening during the pandemic with everyone being remote and everyone working from home, like just mm-hmm. being able to assess talent or build partnerships or hire the right people during the pandemic must have been its own particular. Like, I, I don't know how severe the, the lockdowns were in Nigeria, um, but elsewhere in the world.
0: Yeah. No, initially they were, but I think um, a lot of African countries are over it. So like business <laughs> is much business as usual. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. In South Africa, it's like, we've got bigger problems. <laughs> exactly. COVID's exactly. a big deal, but there's bigger deals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Working with us. If you could snap your fingers and solve one challenge for Wella Health right now, mm. just like it's gone. What would that challenge be?
0: That's an easy question. It's access to capital. So despite yeah. all that success, I think it's really still really difficult to actually get the right capital to do what we're trying to do, because not a lot of people understand it, you know, um, and not, not a lot of people get it. Um, and so it's, it's really painstaking trying to get you know right investors that understand the model and see what the potential opportunity is. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's the one thing I'd say would be wonderful if I could uh, get a magic wand. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that makes sense, particularly given the point that you were saying earlier about network effects. You know, the move from 300 to 1,500 pharmacies is huge, but in Nigeria, there's there's more. You know, if you could grow that to 3,000 or 5,000 pharmacies, uh, then that would say so much about the quality of the offering that you're able to give. I'm curious, if, if you got investment... Do you know now like what you would invest that in?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so my, <laughs> my 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 engineering lead is always complaining. He's run off his feet, everybody's pulling him left, right, and center. And so in fact, over over the pandemic, we grew too fast and we had to like hire people to solve mm-hmm. stuff that tech should solve. Mm. So we're not building tech fast enough. And and the key thing is that. The tech we build is not just for ourselves, but it's actually to embed it into other people's systems. So we'd love to mm-hmm. be able to build tech to actually help other people help us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so a lot of times, for instance, you know, people send us information via WhatsApp, you know, via email, via text messages. When yeah. we have like an API that could easily collect that information automatically and do the work automatically. Yeah. But we've got to go from WhatsApp into that system, you know, so being able to build all these systems, automate things better just means we can actually scale a lot faster and easier. So it would be investing in a lot of technology and product people to go and get tech, not just for us, but into all these other people we work with.
1: Nice. That makes a lot of sense, particularly because it has that kind of attribute of upfront capital. Like Once you build yeah. that system, you know, that WhatsApp automation, you that says a lot about the support staff that you need. You can reduce your operating costs uh, and it increases the viability of your models. That's like a very that's a very clear upfront investment proposal Mm. for for what you have in mind. So interesting.
0: (laughs) And I mean our goal and and that's key because our goal is to serve tens of millions of people. We know we can't do that with humans. (laughs) It's not possible at all.
1: (laughs) There's humans in the picture somewhere. (laughs) All right. So just to wrap up our show, a few last questions for you. The first question I have for you is if the, if you have any requests for donors or investors who fund social enterprises? Fund well, I Health. It's <laughs> <laughs> not crazy. It's not crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually
0: fundraising at the moment. So yeah, so, you know, um, looking, looking to raise. So yeah, absolutely. Would love to speak to people that are interested in what we're doing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But even on that front, as someone who has received investment as well, do you, have any, do you have any guidance for how donors should or could fund an organization like yours? Like, what are some of the things that work and don't work in donor relationships that, that you might guide donors on?
0: So I think with donors, it's flexibility. So if you're funding a startup, I think be willing to be flexible. First of all, don't, don't fund people you don't trust but as long as you trust somebody and you fund them, trust them to figure it out as well, right? I mean, you can see the journey I've been through, right? I started off trying to build a ZocDoc for Africa and here I am, <laughs> I'm an insurer, right? So <laughs> um, if, if I raise money from a donor to build Zoktok of Africa and I'm an insurer, it kind of looks like, you know, what are you doing here? Um, but that's what the market wants, right? So I think for donors, be very flexible, you know, on the details. So allow, you know, founders and entrepreneurs to figure it out as they go along and support them as, as they do that. Um, yeah. And then on the, the I think the sort of traditional startup investors understand that. So that's not their problem. I think for them, it's patience. That's more important, right? Uh, that especially early on, growth is very slow and painstaking. Mm-hmm. And there is no value in that added pressure of looking for growth. You just mm-hmm. kind of wear down the entrepreneur, right? I think just mm-hmm. you know, understanding that when you put in money into this um, vertical, you just have to be patient.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you. I think there's such a drive for growth over everything else. Whereas like, if we just create this market, this new market that's never existed before, one slow step at a time, that's a huge achievement in and of itself. You know, Growth exactly. will come when it comes. That's right. If you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: This is a, I think about this question and I, I, I struggle to answer it because I don't have a lot of regrets if that makes sense I just kind of you know learn as I go along and improve I'm not one to kind of dwell on regrets and um, because I think even the the lessons I've learned is is as a result of the things that have happened you know so it's, it's difficult to kind of go back and you know advise myself but I would say that if there was one thing I could tell myself it was probably start the company earlier <laughs> <laughs>
1: All those years in med school, what were you doing? Just saving lives. I don't know. (laughs) Save more (laughs) lives sooner.
0: (laughs) You know, I think there is a lot more risk that you can take when you're younger. Um, Mm. I mean, having said that there's a lot of value in experience as well, but I think personally, um, you know, if I'd started it younger, I think that I would have been able to take even more risks, right? That would probably have helped me learn the lesson faster. So what I would say is, you know, just start things early is what I would have told my younger self. Take the risk early. I love that.
1: I love that. I think so many people are waiting for the right moment in their lives to do whatever it is that they were born to do, but you only have one life to live and nobody knows how long it's going to be. So like, you know, if you know what you want, just go for it, by all means. Exactly. Let's
0: go for it. And take take the riskier option, actually. If you have two options and you're young, take the riskier option every single
1: <laughs> time. You're going to get somebody in trouble, but maybe it'll be good trouble.
0: <laughs> trouble is good. <laughs> trouble is good.
1: Oh boy. Can you name someone, would you like to offer a shout out? Name someone who has inspired or guided your work?
0: But oh, geez, I've got lots and lots of people that inspire and guide my work. So, in, and it depends on the vertical, right? So, in the microinsurance space, there's Microinsure, you know, which is one of the first microinsurance companies in the world. He's actually one of my advisors, Richard Leftley. You know, love and love the work he's done and the personal, you know, advice he's even given me. So, you know, he really inspired me a lot. On the health tech side, there's a founder in the US, founder of Practice Fusion. I think hmm. they sold to um, 890 end. but Practice Fusion, you know, really loved his uh, founding story. Cause he, he liquidated his whole life to start his company <laughs> and I can relate <laughs> to <commitment>. that. <laughs> so that was inspiring. Yeah. So I kind of pick, you know, different stories that speak to me from different people's, you know, um, lives and stories to help build kind of, you know, the kind of motivation and inspiration that I need to move ahead. So there isn't just one person or thing. I think it's just multiple different things. The other thing I'll say actually is one of the things that helped me to make that move back to Nigeria is back in 2014, there was a huge, there was a number of, you know, Nigerian founders who had really done a lot of good work in, you know, attracting venture capital and building businesses that were, you know, quite prominent. So um, a guy called Jason Njoku from a company called Iro- Iroko TV. So they had the Netflix of Africa or the mm-hmm. African Netflix, if you like. So he'd done a lot of amazing work and he actually written about it. So, I you know, I found it very inspirational. You know, there are guys that, you know, tried to start the Amazon of, our, of Nigeria. So Kunga and Jumia, again, you know, really love the, you know, the the passion that they had and the risk they took, you know, that was really inspiring to me and helped me to make that jump.
1: Nice. That's a great lineup. Life hack: What's one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective, productive, and motivated? Or motivated. Any one of them.
0: Yeah, so I still struggle with this, but every time I do it, I always have a great day. It's to wake up early.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah. You're not a morning person, but you want to be. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so I kind of... I think, I think the challenge is, so working as a doctor, you know, your your sleep just gets destroyed. You know, being on call and just... Oh,
1: I you figured know, you were just talk. partying late at night every night.
0: Well, <laughs> that's <too. laughs> you. so sometimes I struggle with mornings. But whenever I'm able to get up, say, at six in the morning and, like, get working, like, the day is so much better. I accomplish a lot. So if there's one thing that you can do is to get up early in the morning and just start working early.
1: Nice. We won't talk about the trade-offs with the evenings. We'll just skip over that part. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so, uh, La uh, reading. What is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry?
0: So I started a number of different industries, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so because I, I think on the on the tech side, I think there's like blogs and um substacks and like um even LinkedIn updates that people post that I think are very useful. So on tech, the, the tech cabal blog, sorry, no tech cabal um newsletter, it's a daily newsletter that kind of, you know, brings you up to speed what everything that's happening in tech in Africa. So always read that. Um, and then there's kind of specific people I follow on the insurance side and on the healthcare side as well. But I find that um, I end up having to kind of, there's not one resource, I end up having to read a lot of different things and then kind of synthesize my own stuff. So I actually write a lot myself when I try to. <laughs>
1: oh, nice.
0: <laughs> um, what? To write a lot myself, to kind of distill all the stuff that I learned from all the kind of, you know, blogs and articles and different things that I read.
1: How do people how can people find your writing?
0: So I've got a medium page. It's docneto is the medium page. Uh, um, still on medium, I'm, huh? <laughs> well, sub substack. I've moved to substack actually. But there's some there stuff I still put on medium. Mm. But I do have a substack as well. But the substack I only write say two or three times a year so far.
1: <laughs> medium it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get to know other other that, I'm up. so
0: busy. I'm so busy these days I don't write as much, but I really love writing.
1: I hear you. Life really gets in the way of all our hobbies. It does. Last question, just for fun, can you recommend a book, a blog or a podcast that you've enjoyed? Oh, geez, where
0: do I start? Okay, I'll give you one because I have <laughs> lots, but but I think the one book that um, really impacted um, the way I think, and I think the mark of a good book for me is I buy it like several times, every time I move or lose it or give it out because I always give it out. But, it's a book okay. called the, the Spirit Level, right?
1: Oh, huh, I have of it.
0: It's two epidemiologists, um, British epidemiologists, and they, uh-huh. they basically look at all the data and they essentially build the story and come to the conclusion that equality is better for everybody, right? Oh. And when societies are more unequal,
1: mm-hmm. there's
0: more, you know, social problems and social ills. So the more equal a society is, the better it is for everybody. Fascinating. And the idea that economics so broad economic growth only helps everybody to a point. Beyond a certain point, society should strive for more equality and more um, more egalitarian societies essentially and he like they, wow. they go through a lot of data to prove this
1: fascinating is there for people who are listening to this podcast that might want to get in touch with you or learn more about the work that you're doing what's the best way to learn more about you and Wella health
0: yeah so like i said i tweet a lot
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah yes
0: <laughs> trying to tweet less these days but yeah so uh, twitter is the best way to reach me doc Neto is my handle that's d-o-c-n-e-t-o Docneto mm-hmm.
1: on Twitter is the best way. To talk. Nice, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Docneto. <laughs> Hope Thanks to talk so to much. you again soon. Pleasure. Take Absolutely. care. Absolutely.
0: Right.
1: That's a wrap for this week. Iqpeme is the first of a few different social enterprises we're going to talk to that are exploring work within the private sector of healthcare in Africa. And there's so many differences between his approach and what you might hear from a traditional nonprofit. For example, he focuses on malaria, because that's where a lot of people spend their headspace and their money. Whereas if you look at U.S. global health financing, for example, almost half of its funding goes to HIV-AIDS. Unlike a public sector program, he needs to create value for pharmacists and insurance providers, because those are the guys that are going to pay a lot of the operational costs to keep the system running. And of course, the trade-off. How do you always put patients' health first? even if there may be some conflicts of interest with pharma or insurance providers. Donors in the public sector are often accused of focusing too much on one particular vertical or disease and not looking at the overall health system. But if you look at Wella Health, they are necessarily focused on bringing down the cost of healthcare to open markets and to make it affordable. And in that journey, they've intentionally decided to prioritize some of the heaviest hitters that are most present in the hearts and wallets of these communities. Malaria, diabetes, and a few other chronic diseases. And it's because they focus on that particular subset that they can bring down the price of treatment for those diseases. But for all that is different and all that's the same about working in the public sector or the private sector, one thing remains the same. Just like any nonprofit, Wella Health needs some initial cash to get off the ground. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard today, help us spread the word. Leave a review or rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend. And join us in two weeks when we speak with Ben Bellows of NIVI, which is employing intelligent chatbots to support communities all over Africa. If you have any questions for me or Ben, you can send them to us on Twitter at Aid of All. See you soon.